hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the 12th part of the reading and we're on chapter 13. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 13, Nova Scotia. The amethyst dome of the sky faded away behind the advancing golden waves of the rising sun, and all the beauty of our haven unfolded itself before our eyes. The dark pines, crowding to the edge of each shore, were reflected in a mirror of water. What had appeared in the night to be a solid mass of land turned out to be several islands all low-lying, The part north of us we assumed must be attached to the mainland, for several wooden houses and buildings could be seen. We ate a leisurely breakfast of buttered biscuits and tea, then smoked contemplative pipes in the cockpit. The sky, now a cornflower blue, remained unclouded, and the warmth of the sun was comforting after the cool night. The air was absolutely still, and to prove it, we got an inch of candle which we lit and put overboard to float. The outgoing tide caught it and carried it out towards the open sea with its flame barely guttering. Presently, we heard the putt-putt of a single-cylinder engine and far away we could see a boat that seemed to be coming out of the land and we realised that the harbour must extend somewhere north round a corner where the little motorboat appeared. The putt-putt came close to us, no hand line of this but a pleasure excursion Beside the man steering were two pretty girls, upon whom we cast an appreciative eye and gave a friendly wave. The greeting was returned, and we were subjected to a quizzical stare. When they were passed, we heard the tinkle of girlish laughter. The sight of us must have been amusing. Well, we'd had a good laugh at ourselves a day or two earlier. Unknown to them, they had answered an important question for us. As they went past, we saw Lady Jane, Shelburne, Of course, now we remembered from our visit to Nova Scotia the previous year that this was the third largest harbour in the world and would naturally put a dent on any map. Though used by the Navy during the war, it was now only the refuge of a few fishing boats, diminishing sadly in number. Faint airs ruffled the placid water, so we cast off and at once started to drift out to the open sea again, the wind being too light to overcome the ebbing tide. A short spell of hard work again with the spinnaker poles brought us back to the buoy. Several boats now passed us, coming from the open sea, all appeared well laden, so they must have had a good night's fishing. The wind gathered a little strength and we cast off again from the buoy, tacking further up the harbour. Ahead of us we could see a squat stone beacon. This we thought must mark the turn to the north, and we tacked towards it, the wind blowing from the west. It so happened that we were right, for once round the beacon, we saw the harbour stretching for miles ahead of us. It looked like a very broad river. The turn had brought the wind onto our beam, so that we were able to lay a course straight for the end of this lovely sheet of water, where we could just see a thicker cluster of houses, which we guessed would be Shelburne. All the way down, we passed a forest of pines on our left, growing so thickly that they looked like a green-topped stockade. To our right was a continuous thin straggle of houses following a road leading to Shelburne. 
These wooden-framed houses, usually painted white, are built to the owner's particular wishes, and in many cases he does the job himself with the aid of friends, paid and unpaid. The result can be very pleasing, and in any case is much more interesting than our own lines and squares of council houses. While we sailed along, enjoying to the full this new world after so much empty wave-tossed water, a fishing patrol vessel came charging past us at full throttle, making a brave sight and a large bow wave. We were not quite prepared for the latter, for when it hit us the sudden roll and pitch knocked all the crockery off the galley table. No damage was done except the teapot which broke its spout. The remainder, fortunately, were unbreakable. Shelburne quickly became clear and we could see several wooden pile piers running out about 20 yards into the harbour, and with a little smart work at the sails, we came gently to rest alongside the nearest, only to be told not to lie there because we should go aground at low tide. So we hoisted up sail and took the Nova to another, indicated by our first conversational blue nose. He looked a hardy type, tall with a rather cadaverous face. He was dressed in the usual manner of Nova Scotia fishermen, floppy rubber thigh boots, tweed trousers and a flannel shirt of many colours. We asked him to come aboard and sample some of our morale booster. Carefully he climbed aboard and poked his head and shoulders into the cabin. Looking around with great interest, he swallowed a mugful of the booster without a change of expression, much to our amazement, and then he said, Where do you chaps come from? We answered, London. He looked nonplussed for a moment, but recovered his composure instantly and said, Oh, New London, Connecticut. Trying to look as though it were an everyday occurrence, we repeated, London, and added, England. Doubt gave way to understanding, and he automatically pushed forward the mug for some more booster, and then delivered his verdict. Don't know about you chaps, but I wouldn't cross the harbour in this. When questioned about customs and regulations, he said, Oh, don't bother about that tonight. Anyway, the customs man will have you gone home by now. No one will bother you here. After asking many questions on food, rig and weather, which we answered as best we could, he solemnly shook us by the hand and departed home to wife and supper. While we had been talking below, a few knots of people had gathered on the pier, silently staring down at us. We didn't mind this, except for the fact that there are certain duties one must carry out during the 24 hours, and now there was no privacy. Fortunately, it soon became completely dark, and the people moved away. We had another good long sleep that night, and awoke to a day that looked as though it would equal the previous one. There was, however, a different odour mixed with the pine scent, a slight but unmistakable smell of fish. we just managed to finish our breakfast when someone jumped onto the dock with a thud that shook the boat from truck to keelson, and a cheerful face appeared down the hatchway. Wishing us a good morning, the new arrival asked for all the news we could give, as he was the editor of the local weekly paper, The Coast Guard. Our friend of the previous night must have spread the news. We invited him to come down and have a cup of tea, he looked a bit dubious about this, and then started to fight his way in. He must have brought a good two hundred pounds of solid flesh with him. One of the first things he said when safely established on a bunk was, I bet you boys could do with a large steak each. With what we fear was a hungry wolfish look, we replied as calmly as possible, I oh, thank you very much, we could. 
He told us where his house was located and added that we should be there at 1pm. We presented ourselves to the customs before keeping our appointment. It proved a very easy job, just signing a name three times in quadruplicate. As we still had plenty of time, we walked slowly along the main street, admiring the well-stocked grocery shops. We had not gone far when we noticed our legs began to ache. Soon it became an agony to walk, especially for Charles, who had a permanent stiff leg caused by a motor smash years ago, which sometimes troubles him even in normal circumstances. We managed to walk to our friend the editor's house and sat down with great relief in front of an enormous steak. There was little said for the next 20 minutes, and when the last mouthful was downed, we knew how the editor had gained his pounds. He had a wife who was a really excellent cook. We sat and talked about our voyage, Shelburne and ships for the rest of the afternoon, and then we returned to our boat after giving sincere thanks for a wonderful meal. We had a continuous stream of visitors that evening. It was always interesting to talk to the many fishermen who came and asked intelligent questions about the way the boat behaved in bad weather, something that they have had to combat time and time again. We had few, in fact very few, silly questions like, do you anchor at night, or did you follow the shore around? We bunked down that night with the firm conviction that we would beach the Nova the following day and remove all the noisome goose barnacles which had caused us so much trouble and loss of time. Bright and early the following morning, we mooched along the shore looking for a nice hard beach where we could bring the Nova at high water and then wait for the tide to leave her high and dry. We located a suitable site by a fragment of broken quay. High tide was at 12 o'clock. So with a few hours to wait, we visited a local shipyard owned by a father and two sons. Times were slack and there was nothing being built, but in the corner of the big empty shed was one of the graceful little blue-nose class boats. These little racing boats are somewhat similar to our own Solent sunbeams. The father told us of the many schooners that were once built at Shelburne in the hardier days of sail. He very kindly lent us a wire brush and some scrapers for the coming operation on the Nova's bottom. We returned and sailed our boat to her cleaning berth. Now we had to wait about another five hours for the tide to ebb. Up to this time we had no Canadian money, but one of us, no names, no pack drill, could see the other talking earnestly to a man of somewhat less respectability than most of our visitors, a man who evidently thought that as most Nova Scotians are called blue noses, he might just as well put on a real show. There were furtive glances, a bulging pocket which mysteriously lost its bulk and appeared again at the rear of the hard case. Anyway, we went and bought a large meal at a restaurant we had admired the day before. We walked back to the Nova, now looking strange to us, standing on her long, thin keel with the bottom resembling a man with a month-old beard. We waited another hour for the rest of the water to fall away, and then we went to work on each side. It was a great delight to see the barnacles cut from their stranglehold and fall among the stones. Some added insult to injury by tumbling down our necks as we worked on the planking above our heads. As soon as we had finished the scraping, we got busy with the fine wire brush, and once more the Nova was looking clean and sleek on her all-important underwater sections. That evening, there was another meeting with the hard case, and we rang up a good mutual friend in Halifax named Mac. He was delighted to hear from us and said he would come down tomorrow to see us.
Our craft was afloat by midnight, and as there was no wind, we paddled her back to her original berth. When we entered the cabin, we found that some kind soul had left a large packet of sandwiches and several bottles of pop, so we had a midnight feast and awoke quite late the next day. By now, the Nova was becoming a mecca for sightseers. They came from miles around, and we found this interest very embarrassing. Mac arrived at mid-morning, and we were overjoyed to see his well-dressed form. At midday, we had to leave him for an hour, for we had been invited to a luncheon given by the Shelburne Board of Trade. The affair was so friendly that our nervousness left us, and we gave a brief account of our voyage to date. The Honorary Minister of Trade from Halifax was present and was interested to hear that we had sailed under the auspices of the British Board of Trade and the festival authorities. Before we left, we were each presented with an illuminated address, making us honorary life members of the Shelburne Board of Trade. When we told Mac that we intended to sail tomorrow, he said, You guys look too thin and haggard. Have one good night in a real bed. It would give you a change and a refresher. We agreed reluctantly, for neither of us liked leaving the Nova, but we didn't want to disappoint old Mac. He walked with us down to the boat, and on board, he opened his suitcase and brought out masses of cookies and cake. Mrs. Mac had prepared them for us, and evidently stayed up the greater part of the night doing so. Such kindness made our please thank her very much seemed most inadequate. There was a nice southwesterly wind blowing, so we took our friend for a trial spin in the harbour. We were glad to note that the removal of the barnacles had made a great difference to the Nova's speed. We even left astern a snappy little snipe that had the audacity to challenge us. We returned before the evening calm, and gathering up our toothbrushes, left the boat for a night ashore. We never locked up the Nova, for it seemed discourteous amongst so many kind and friendly people. Mac, who evidently knew where he was going, hailed a taxi and took us to a guest chalet hidden among the pine trees high on a hill. It was a lovely evening, and the peace of the forest acted like a tonic on us. We sat and smoked on the veranda, talking about old times and life in Canada, a country where hard work usually brought good dividends. We returned to Shelburne next morning, ready to tackle anything that came our way. It was good to see the boat again, and we immediately prepared to sail. The navigator went to wind the chronometer, but to his dismay, it was missing. This was awful, for we would never be able to afford another one. Going on deck and disconsolately looking around, we saw a man standing on the doorstep of a house opposite the wharf, beckoning us to come over. When we reached his side, he said, Did you find something missing from your boat? We quickly replied that we had. And I know who done it, he said, and added, I was looking through the window here and saw this guy reach in your hatchway and take something away, something small that he put in his pocket. We thanked him very much and went over to a Mountie who had just parked his car nearby. We told him about our loss and what we had just heard. He went over to the man who had given us the information about the theft, found out the culprit's name, and that he was last seen in a motorboat heading down the harbour. On hearing this news, we gave up hope, for, completely overlooking the astuteness of the Mounties, we naturally thought the thief would get clear away. In less than two hours, the chronometer was back in our hands, but full of seawater. The Mounties told us that they had found out where the man lived and dashed off by car to await his boat's arrival. Hiding behind a bush, they waited until the small boat was beached and then walked quickly towards it. However, they had some 30 yards to cover and they were spotted, 
so when they asked for the watch, they were informed by the owner of the boat that he most certainly hadn't got it. Search him and the boat if they liked. However, one officer had noticed him stoop down in the shallow water as they approached, so they examined the spot and saw our watch lying pathetically in a foot of water. When asked if charges were to be pressed, we said, no, for it would have marred our otherwise friendly relations with the people of Shelburne, and besides, we had heard that the culprit was considered dim-witted and was not a citizen of the town. We opened the chronometer face and out poured some water. Wiping out the remaining drops with a handkerchief, we snapped the face to and, to our amazement, the watch started to tick as steadily as though it has always been used to bathing. Still, we knew that something would soon rust up, so we hurried over to a watch repairer we had seen in the main street, only to find his premises closed. This was maddening, but we went back to the boat, determined to sail anyway. However, on arrival at the wharf, we saw the harbour stretching away like a mirror, completely windless, thwarted again. We went below and rested on the bunks, and in the evening our friend the editor came to visit us, and we told him of our trouble. He said that he would ring up the watch repairer, who was a friend of his. Away he went, and returned a few minutes later with the news that if we went up to the shop in ten minutes' time, the repairer, Ashton Atkinson, would meet us and do the necessary cleaning. It was dark when we arrived outside the shop. We knocked at the door, and it was opened by a youngish man with a pleasant face who invited us in. In the neat little repair shop, we watched him take the chronometer to pieces and then place the parts in a machine containing three different solutions. A long swish in each, and the chronometer was reassembled, ticking beautifully. Ashton, who was a member of the local board of trade, said that the town would like to give us an official send-off the next evening, and although this meant wasting another day, we agreed. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.